0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the History Voyager podcast. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. This is a fascinating conversation that I had with a woman named Eddie, who runs the Sino Babble podcast. I highly recommend listening to it. The links are going to be in the description. It's a very fascinating deep dive right now into China in the 20th century. And we talked about a lot of things China-related. And also, she's going to come back. Because one thing you need to know about me is, first of all, I'm fascinated by technology. And secondly, I'm also fascinated by China and Chinese history. Which is how we ended up connecting through Reddit. Anyway... So give this podcast a listen, and please listen to her podcast. It's really amazing, and I I like it. I've been listening on the regular um, ever since I've been aware of it, which hasn't been that long, but she counts me as a loyal listener uh, now. And you guys take care of yourselves and have a great day. And uh, like I always tell you, I'm having a good day, and I hope you are too. All right, I'll see you on the flip side. Hello everybody, this is Benjamin Kitchings of the History Voyager Podcast. I'm here with Eddie of the Sino Battle Podcast. Right now she's doing a history of China in the 20th century, and it absolutely is fascinating. Um so first off, uh just talking to you okay. So when I saw you on Reddit, right? Mm-hmm. And I saw you at the Sinobabble podcast. First, I I would have thought that you were Chinese, either Chinese-British or Chinese-Australian or Chinese-American or whatever, Canadian, I don't know. (laughs) Imagine my shock when I talk to you and it's a very, very cultured uh, woman from England. (laughs) It sounds like she fell out of an Agatha Christie novel. (laughs) So, how in the world did you get into this?
1: Uh, That's a good question. Considering you're absolutely right, I have no Chinese blood whatsoever. Um, I guess it started when I was much younger, in my teen years. I was fascinated by East Asian culture, mainly Japanese culture, and when I was off to university. And it was time to pick a subject. Um, I think at that time, Japan's economy or Japan in general was, um, you know, not doing so hot. And China was definitely on the rise. Everyone could see that China was going to be a big trend in the future. And so just looking into different sort of university level courses, I guess, that's how I got an interest. And I was like, let me try it out. I can always change if I don't enjoy it. But I ended up enjoying it. And so here I am. A decade later still <laughs> occupying all of my time looking at chinese history and present-day chinese current affairs as well
0: you know i remember studying uh china i think we might have gone to college around the same time or at least i went back to college around the same time you did and i remember in political science talking about how china was just Picking themselves up up off the mat, essentially, and just growing like you wouldn't believe. And to think about like that was over ten years ago at this point, and where we are now with phones and and televisions and it's just amazing.
1: Yeah, China is a completely different place to. I mean, even five years ago, but if you go back 10, 20 years. The transformations are truly shocking. And, you know, I went to China for my year abroad. I can't remember. what I think it was something like 2011, 2012, something like that. And I recently lived in Hong Kong and got to visit the mainland again. And even in that short amount of time, there's been so much change in terms of um, development. Uh, when I got there as well, I was trying to pay for things with cash and people were looking at me like I was a crazy person. Um, So, yeah, definitely a lot has changed even within, you know, the time that I've been looking at China.
0: I guess you're talking about, I mean, paying with your mobile phone or? or Yeah. Don't they pay through? Okay. (laughs) We're going to talk about, I can feel it. We're going to talk about WeChat a lot. (laughs) I'm not sure what WeChat is exactly. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Can you tell me what WeChat is?
1: Um, So WeChat is uh, basically the equivalent of, I guess, WhatsApp, but it has wider functionality. Um, So it has, it's kind of like WhatsApp and Instagram rolled into one. Um, It's also got news feeds in there from a company. So, um, you know, if you want to follow a specific brand or a specific um, channel, something like that, like a news channel or something, they will have their own WeChat. And yes, there is a payment function on there as well. But I don't think it's as popular as another function called Alipay um, from Alibaba, which was, uh, so Alibaba was originally an e-commerce site, and then they expanded into payment platforms. You may have heard of Jack Ma, who is the richest man in China.
0: I have. I have um, I think he was disappeared recently.
1: Yes, and then miraculously reappeared. After probably apologising profusely for offending the government, um, but yes, yeah, so that w- Alibaba is um, is all him, and so these sorts of online uh, payment platforms, Alibaba, WeChat Pay, and recently PayPal as well, is also starting to expand in China. They're becoming a lot more popular,
0: right? And I, I suppose it, it's fair to say that uh, the the That some regions of China are essentially, at least economically, uh first world Mm -hmm. and other regions are like very third world. So it's a very uneven place.
2: Yes.
1: In general. Um I believe the term Deng Xiaoping first coined was let some people get rich first. Um, so the the kind of the uneven development's always been a problem in China because in the early 20th century you had a lot of foreign investment coming into China, but it was mainly focused in the eastern and southern areas, so the coastal areas, the big areas that we know now like Shanghai, um, also the what's known as the Pearl River Delta, which is in Guangdong province, so sort of uh, Canton near Hong Kong, those sorts of areas. Current day Shenzhen, for example. Um, So those places have always been, you know, um, hubs of trade and commerce, especially with the outside world. And so when the Communist Party took over, they were a base for them to start developing China. And then when you get to the 1980s and it's time to sort of bring everybody into this semi-capitalist, semi-socialist development thing, you get the problem of, well, people in the interior, People in places like Xinjiang or Yunnan or Mongolia or even like Gansu, central China, they are so much less uh, privileged, so much less developed. And um, now, actually, very recently, China has just, I think it's in the last month or two, they've just started celebrating the end of absolute poverty in China. So that really shows you why the contrast. Why
0: don't we say, okay, first of all, why don't we say what absolute poverty is?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And second, okay, so let's back up, right? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about a little bit about, so communism in China is a post-World War II phenomenon? Um, okay.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: Okay. Listening to your podcast, uh, it's fair to say it's a post World War II phenomenon. So, what had existed before in China? It was it was basically like this feudal system. I don't um, know if you can hear the question mark across the Atlantic, but
1: <laughs> yeah. So, that, I mean, that's essentially correct until the um, the big, the turn of the 20th century, essentially. China had been in an imperial system where each dynasty would replace the last, but essentially things wouldn't change for the common people. So the majority of people, uh, probably you know ninety percent, were um, farmers, peasant farmers who either rented or owned very small plots of land and lived on subsistence. The number of people who lived in cities at the turn of the century would have been insignificant completely. Um, and then the final dynasty, the Qing dynasty, was toppled in 1911 through revolution. Um, this was led primarily by a man named Sun Yat-sen, um, and it was supposed to sort of usher in this democratic phase in China. But unfortunately, the the thing, you know, things fall apart, and um, the country basically descended into chaos, into land law, um, sorry, warlord warfare and it wasn't until about 20 years later when they were able to knit themselves together again, by which time the Second World War had broken out, and then the incumbent government, who were the nationalists, were overthrown by the communists, and the nationalist government fled to Taiwan.
0: Okay, so uh, I have a feeling that you just blazed over huge stretches of your your podcast for me. Um, Thank you. That's
2: okay, <laughs> way, <laughs>
0: Um. So let me ask. Um. Let me ask. So during the seventies or eighties, or so, we had we they had communism in China, and then they, I guess you said Deng Xiaoping. So when was he? Um, I guess like the. Is it the party secretary or president? What, what, how would you refer to him?
1: So, interestingly, Deng Xiaoping is probably China's only leader to have never had an official, uh, title as president or premier, um, or chairman. So, there hasn't been a chairman since Chairman Mao, he's he was the only chairman, um, and he died in 1976. So after his death, there was a small power struggle, I would say. Um, but uh, by the 1980s, Deng Xiaoping had essentially taken over. He had always been an important figure, in terms, especially in terms of the economy. Um, and he'd always been sort of, you know, number four, number five ranking in the country. So he didn't really need the title in order to uh, run effectively. It was entrenched by that time that he was in charge of things.
0: Okay. Okay. Um. Okay. So, Deng Xiaoping was ruling China. You said in the seventies or eighties. Um.
1: Yeah, eighties and early nineties.
0: Okay. All right. So, and what would? Okay. So when we talk about, um, we talk about absolute poverty, right? which China is, air quotes, celebrating the end of. Yeah.
2: Uh, We're in
1: what,
0: <laughs> okay, what is absolute poverty, first of all?
1: Um, so I believe absolute poverty is living on less than a dollar a day, the US dollar.
0: Okay, so that's over.
1: Yes, yeah. so they recently announced that, I mean, this is one of Xi Jinping's major uh, policy drives, um, I was going to say of his uh, presidency, but it looks like he's going to be president until he dies. Um, so, yeah, so his one of his major policy drives was to eliminate what he considered to be absolute poverty. Um, for In Western terms, that would mean uh, things like, you know, making sure that rural areas had a certain level of development, making sure children had adequate schooling and access to food and shelter, things like that. In China, it's, um, it was a bit more hands-on, let's say, uh, lots of relocation of people away from their traditional uh, homestead-style living, if you will, bringing them into more developed areas. So physically relocating people to more developed areas in a lot of cases and bringing them into the official sort of nationally recorded, nationally um surveyed workforce
0: okay Um, I remember again this is more than 10 years ago but I remember there was a, a video we had to watch in class of like these farmers some of them were quite old and they'd never lived in a city in their life and they'd been made to relocate to a city but The city still like you still had to have them go out in the fields so there was like literally like a bus system that would come and pick them up and and they would go into the field and they would handle their crops and and the the thrust of this documentary as i remember it was uh china is modern like it's urbanizing but the urbanization okay like in britain or in america or canada or lots of other places um so you have an urban population that has urban jobs right or you know what i'm saying yeah yeah and the thrust of the video was like these people don't these cities are essentially fake basically because they don't have any like there's no jobs there Mm -hmm. right uh does that still go on to to any extent or, or do you do you know
1: um so i i did read that uh, a bit more recently places like Mongolia, they were experimenting uh with that style of living and i mean now that young sort of the next younger generation is less interested in doing the traditional farming jobs or in doing traditional say if they are of an ethnic minority like uh, mongodian or something like that doing the traditional um jobs that their people would have done in the past they do tend to move to urban areas and try and find urbanized jobs, and so urban areas in China. I, I guess I guess you're right in that they're not organic. So in in the West, we kind of think of urban areas um, in a sort of supply and demand sort of way, right? So like there is you know a new drive for jobs, and so an urban area will spring up to meet that demand, um, but. In China, it's very uh, government-led. Almost every, any initiative that you can think of is a government-led initiative. So urbanisation is not uh, a bottom-down sort of movement. It is the government essentially demanding that people urbanise because to be urbanised is better. And so it, <laughs> it's, it kind of um, defies Western logic in that way. But in China, you know, that's, um, that's how things are done, really.
0: Well, there was a podcaster whose name I can't remember right now who who had this interesting take on China and Japan and Korea, for that matter. And his take was that they discovered Western thought all at the same time. Like, they discovered all of Western thought at once. So it's like where in this country and in your country like london started out as a as a roman fort essentially Mm -hmm. and and my city started out as a a railroad hub essentially Mm -hmm. um so china was like oh the west builds cities so okay let's build cities let's be western let's modernize
2: Yeah. yeah exactly yeah
1: yeah, it's, and, kind of, it's kind of like a post-facto thing. It's like, oh, they are modernized and their economy and their people are doing so well, perhaps we should emulate that kind of directly instead of sort of doing a causal analysis, if you will.
0: Yeah. Right. And and your podcast, the episodes that I've heard, they, they you lay out the case that this is a common, I I guess the word is issue? With the Chinese leadership throughout the 20th and now in the 21st century, that they look at the tools and they think the tools are why it's happening, right? They don't look at the the thought processes as much behind the tools.
2: Yeah, like they just yeah
1: yeah. I think that's a that's a fairly good way of looking at it. It's more like um, I mean, in the late 19th century, when um, China had been sort of invaded by the West, you know, after the Opium Wars and everything like that, they then decided, well, you know, if we're going to protect ourselves from the West, we need to be more like them, essentially. And so they they tried to introduce uh, mainly military, but also educational reforms uh, based on Western military and education. So, Previously, they had only, their education was based around sort of traditional Confucian scholarship. The imperial exams were very much based on um, Chinese philosophy, Chinese history, knowledge of how to write poetry and prose. And then the West came along and sort of introduced the importance of mathematics, engineering, geography, earth sciences, um, things like that. And so they ch- attempted... To kind of copy and paste, if you were, superimpose this kind of knowledge onto their own system without really analyzing how the system worked, why the knowledge was useful, or you know, in terms of the military, why was why were Western militaries organized this way? How did they develop their um, the machinery, their weapons, and things like that? They felt they could just buy the machines, bring them into China, give them to their soldiers, and you know. Let them run loose, and they were quickly, you know, disabused of this. They found that that was not the case.
0: Is that why? Okay. Is that why the Chinese government um, makes a big deal out of sending? Uh, I guess essentially, I guess the elite or whoever whoever these people actually are, uh, but they send people to Western universities,
2: um,
0: maybe um, to get a. A sense of the culture or to get a sense of our our thinking
1: yeah i would say first of all um identifying them as elite is correct and i would say this i think this is a very common misconception um where you have either chinese people in the west or western people in big chinese cities like shanghai and they meet you know these chinese people who are fluent in english or perhaps german or whatever languages is and, you know, they're, they, they're engineers or doctors or whatever it is, and they, they're quite well to do. They have studied, you know, they've got a master's or a PhD, and they think that those are Chinese people. That is a very, very small percentage of Chinese people. The majority of Chinese people, I guess it's kind of equivalent to um, a lot of Americans, you know, like they rarely, if ever, have left their state. They don't travel abroad that often. It's a huge misconception that Chinese people are worldly just because China has entered the world, if you will.
0: Yeah, I mean, I saw. It's funny you say that. I saw a there. I'm on Twitter, and I saw this uh, study or something. I don't. I don't know if it's a news story or a study or whatever, but it it's been retweeted. But I think by like half of my Twitter at this point. But it's where, like, there's an alarming percentage of Americans that have no idea. They can't name the 50 states. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Like, they can't name them. (laughs) Which which is... And the take that everybody wants to have is, this is funny. And my thought is, no, no, this is horrifying. (laughs) This is actually horrifying people. like."
1: it's funny you say that you asked me to name every county in england i don't think i could but i know what you mean
0: well i couldn't name every county in my state but i could certainly name every state in the country yeah um you know
1: yeah considering that your country is a is a um state-based um the governmental system it, it makes sense that you should know how uh, right. what, or at least <laughs> right
0: exactly um my cousin uh lives in a small in a, in a biggish small town in in georgia on the border of alabama and georgia and i'm telling you this for a reason they have a whole lot of chinese tourists come to their little town and it's been in the last 5 or 10 years it's been in the last 10 years I would say but I just find that so fascinating that the Chinese I guess I don't know if they're sending these people or if the Chinese people themselves are like oh I want to go to this little town in in Georgia and, and look at it is this something they do? they do
1: I mean I would not to you know dismiss the importance of this small town but um unfortunately I would say that the majority of those if any of those Chinese people had never heard of that town um probably I think it's still the majority of Chinese tourism is um sort of like a group based system you probably, like, it, most people probably remember, like, Japanese people in the 90s, like, when they first started traveling en masse, they would come oh, in, like, yeah. big buses of, like, 30 to 50 people. That's kind of how Chinese tourism works now. And that one small town that your cousin lives in would have been, you know, a multi-city, multi-town, multi-state uh, stop, basically. It would have been one stop okay. with many on this, like, big... A uh, huge arranged travel company tour guide thing. I think there's a car plant there.
0: I don't want to. I don't want to call the wrong company out, but I think there's a big uh, car plant there. I'm not. Sure. I, don't, I don't remember the car right right this minute, but there is. There's a huge car plant there, and I'm wondering if maybe that's it, but I don't know. Um... What about, I mean, so one of the things I wanted to talk to you about in this episode, because I'm a big fan or fan, I'm very knowledgeable about smartphones Mm -hmm. and I'm very knowledgeable about um, some of the problems that you can get into with these, uh, these Chinese based, these Chinese uh, smartphones in the West. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if, if we could touch on that just for just a minute. Okay, sure. As far as like OnePlus and huawei and and uh all, that, all like that
1: yeah sure um so i guess the um i guess the main thing that's going on with um huawei is uh the i think it's the the ceo of the daughter of the or, um, sorry the daughter of the ceo or the cfo Currently in prison, or um, at least is being taken to court in Canada um, at the moment because um, Huawei had been doing some shady deals with Iran and going against the U.S. embargo there, and had all sorts of um, you know backhand or backdoor diplomacy deals going on, or whatever the problem was. Um, but in general, I think the the world views. Chinese telecoms or Chinese mobile phone companies with a general hostility and a general, um, I guess, suspicion.
0: In your judgment, is that warranted?
1: Um, I, it's, it's difficult to say. Like, It's kind of hard to draw a line between unproven sort of conspiracy and a well a well thought out conjecture about what may well be true. I mean, so if, for example, if we look at a company like Facebook, right, we know that Facebook is actively harvesting our data and selling that to other companies um, and advertisers and, you know, taking all sorts of big data and we don't know what's going to be done with it in the future. And so it stands to reason that Chinese companies are doing exactly the same thing. They have the technology to do that. There's no reason why they wouldn't do that. You know, uh, if Facebook has feels like that, that's a good thing to do. Then why wouldn't Xiaomi or Huawei? Um, but I think people's issue is that, or people's thought process, more like, is that whereas with something like Facebook. When the government asks Facebook to hand over the data, they say no. Um, Huawei and every other Chinese company is partially owned by the government or has Chinese party members or a Chinese party branch or committee within the company actively overseeing the operation of certain areas of the company. And if the Chinese government says you must hand over all of your information that you have about your users, they cannot say no
0: that's yeah that's that's my issue right there is and also like i personally like facebook is a company <laughs> right yeah. the chinese government is the chinese government yeah right and so i'm of the i'm a i have the question of okay so because I run a podcast and because I have all these communication apps on my phone, like I have friend suggestions for people I've talked to because of my podcast, right? right. Um, only. And I'm like only sent him email or whatever. Yeah. Right. Um, like I'll bet you anything when, when I, we get off of this podcast, you're, if you're on Facebook, your friend, your You're going to be in my friend's suggestions. I can almost guarantee it. Right? But I've even noticed here lately, like, I can talk to people. Like, I can literally sit in a room and talk to somebody in that room about a thing. Right? And the longer we talk about it, the more likely it is that it shows up in my Google News.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah.
0: (laughs) So my thought is, given all that do i actually want the chinese government to have that same sort of access even though i live in america
1: yeah i think a lot of it depends on how you view data privacy and your own data in general Uh, for example going back to the example of facebook it was revealed that they were running experiments on people to control their emotions, for example, um, and now they're they're sort of battling with international governments. You see them battling with Australia, um, you know, banning news sites from posting on Facebook and things like that. So the the issue with um, the di- the difference, I suppose, is that in in the west it's more about the idea of selling and owning your data and having ownership on that whereas when you talk about a government like the chinese government it becomes a case of espionage right spying um right right uh, whereas not to say that what facebook is doing is innocent um because it's you know trying to manipulate people's emotions uh feeding them uh, more information based on their biases. You know, for example, if you're an, if you are anti-vax, for example, if you voted for Donald Trump, you might get more information about how coronavirus is a hoax, for example, um, and then you get caught in that echo chamber, right? So it's not to say that Facebook is at all innocent, but certainly the connotations of a company versus a company that is beholden to one of the most powerful governments on the planet is very different
0: no i I totally understand that yeah um but like you know that's that's the world we live in I, I guess um,
1: I've heard Huawei phones are very good um in terms of their uh, the hardware though so um, yeah, I have friends that
2: that
0: swear by them like I have friends that I have one friend actually that when Huawei was banned, he went to a lot of trouble to to make it to where he could still use his phone, um, in this country. Yeah, It like a lot of trouble. I'm like, I don't know if I, you know, I'm not saying I'm a government stooge, but I am saying, you know,
2: yeah, don't <laughs> maybe... know how
1: it for a piece of technology, <laughs>
2: you know,
1: yeah, um, and you've yeah, you've kind of hinted at another issue there that a lot of this is um political as well you know the to which we trust or distrust another nation is usually a political narrative and obviously china u.s relations are not in the most um happy of places at the moment and you know you guys are just rebounding from a huge trade war in which as you said huawei was um Mm -hmm. was banned and um sort of 5g towers and things like that built by huawei have been no-node so you know, the extent to which we are sort of fear-mongered, I guess, about, um, you know, the Chinese government spying on you and what you say and what you think is a political problem as well as just a personal security, personal data problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, like, one of the reasons I don't have Zoom, like, one of the reasons I don't like to use Zoom is because I found out Zoom was actually Chinese um software. And I'm like, oh no. There's all kind of things you, you know? Like, no. Um but anyway. Um so where do you see the the Chinese like where do you see our I guess the all this going because like we're a we're a global economy now i mean obviously (laughs) and the pandemic only made that even more clear um so so where do you see that going in the future
1: um well if you mean sort of in terms of uh china u.s relations i think the fundamental problem from my perspective is that the two countries are not compatible in terms of um, sort of thought processes like the way the Chinese think and the way Americans think or generally speaking western democratic countries think is just not the same Um, and the two are not compatible in terms of the way they think the economy should run, the way they think the people should be educated, the way they feel that information should be distributed. Um, you know, none of these things are they on the same page about. So um, I don't think that I think China and America, for example, can have a mutually beneficial relationship. But I think it will always be antagonistic. I don't see a, a future where their best buddy, buddies holding hands, running through fields together um, and have com- you know come to a complete agreement on. The Taiwan, or the South China Sea, or um, nuclear armaments in places like North Korea and Iran. At the end of the day, China is an uh, is an autocratic. By, you know, in the future will probably be a dictatorship. So um, it's certainly a one-party state that has no intention of introducing uh, a, de- a democratic government or any sort of democracy whatsoever. So, just in terms of, yeah. I guess, even what you would consider basic ethical codes, the two countries do not see eye to eye at all.
0: Yeah, I have a, uh, I have a podcast that I have to edit together. Um, I haven't done that yet, but so your podcast is probably going to come out uh, before hers. But she talks a lot about. Um, She was from um, the Outer Soviet Republics uh, Mm -hmm. as a child, and she talks a whole lot about um, living in a one-party state, a one-party nation. Mm -hmm. Would you mind um, talking about, like, the Chinese people? So you told me, essentially, that there's, like, I guess, like, two or three classes of Chinese people. There's, like, people that they're allowed to use vpns which i suppose we need to tell some of our listeners what that is that's a virtual private network where the chinese government can't really spy on them with their internet usage right
1: yeah
2: it's, it's, okay um, yeah.
0: okay
1: i mean okay. in terms of it being allowed it's it's not so much as like you know you get permission and this person doesn't but um there's less preconception about equality before the law in the same way that there is perhaps in someone like America. Like in America, you un- you know, there's an understanding that the justice system is not working as well as it could be. But generally speaking, you know, everybody has the same rights, you know. For- yeah, like,
0: like generally speaking, um, at least technologically, generally speaking, So so somebody in my town is going to be treated the same if they pirate a movie versus somebody else in another town who pirates that same movie. Right, Right. We're basically going to be treated the same. Where in China, that's not really the case.
1: Well, it's not so much the case of pirating versus not pirating. It's more like do you know that you can pirate movies is that information available to you in the first place so somebody who lives in say shanghai who has an idea about uh modern technology who's very well educated probably from a uh, middle class or upper middle class family um, perhaps speaks one or two languages knows about vpns basically has knowledge about uh, Western ideas Western democracy has I don't want to say they think autonomously whereas pe- people from you know inner provinces perhaps don't but it's just a difference in the way that um you know they're oriented towards the world you know like okay. these, many of the fiercest Chinese nationalists have been educated abroad so it's not a case of why they think independently of the government it's just that they have means and knowledge that is not necessarily available to somebody from a poorer region of the country.
0: So, okay. Would a better example be, okay. So a better example might be not pirating movies, but okay. Let me give you an example in my, in my own life, because I have a podcast where I talk to people all over the world. I'm able to, to understand that, you know, we have this situation where you're going to be able to work from your bedroom anywhere in the world right but that company is going to expect they're like they're not going to like i could work from i could work in germany from my bedroom in america but that german company is not going to give me healthcare as a job perk right or or something like that where say somebody in the rural parts of my country who doesn't have the high-speed internet or somebody who does but doesn't use it to talk to people all over the planet right they might not understand that that's that's a real problem that's about to happen you know
1: (laughs) yeah yeah it's about it's it's an access to information sort of Issue. I mean, um, in China, one of the, um, I guess, um, one of the, I don't want to say it's one of the biggest problems, but if you were a small, uh, from a small rural town in an, in a poor province where your whole livelihood had been based around, say, farming or working in a local factory, if one day the government comes and in your town builds a factory that's polluting the local river and therefore polluting your crops and you know several people in your village start dying mysteriously from a cancer your recourse Mm -hmm. to action against the government is severely limited by your status so you're a poor rural farmer you don't have an education you don't have money you cannot hire a lawyer. You can't. You don't have access to good healthcare. You live in the middle of nowhere, and the factory that's polluting a river is run by the government. You know, if it's the government polluting a river, who do you turn to to fix it? Um, and the methods that they use to deal with these people is basically a lot of the time sit down and shut up. You know, no reporters are allowed to go in. When they go to the uh, bigger cities to try and, you know, get support from their case, some they'll be dismissed, perhaps arrested. You know, the the um, the recourse, the access to rights, the idea of rights, is not evenly distributed across society.
0: Wow. Yeah. I mean, so you can really see there's a real. I mean, okay. I don't want to. I don't want to put that concept. Let let me ask it as a question. Does it essentially boil down to if the party, being the government, believes that this city profits them by being able to interface with Germany, say, or uh, you know Canada or England, versus this other city that? maybe doesn't profit them by being able to interface with germany or wherever like the wider world does it boil down like that
1: Yes, yeah, essentially that's um a pretty good way of putting it i mean in the i'm gonna get the years wrong somewhere between the 80s and the 90s, several um areas across china were open called special economic zones and those those are literally exactly what you're talking about the government decided that or the party whomever you want to attribute it to it's essentially the same thing um decided that these areas um should be able to manage their own economic affairs they're no longer beholden to the socialist command economy instead they can institute a capitalist demand economy They can accept as much foreign direct investment as they wish, and they can do business in any way they want. And a perfect example would be the city of Shenzhen, which used to be a small fishing village and is now one of the most technologically advanced cities in the world.
0: So it didn't even, okay, wait. So it didn't even predicate uh, as to, is this city a big city? Like, can this actually work?
1: Mm -hmm. No, not at all. Um, Okay.
0: (laughs) <laughs> so what did it predicate on? Did it predicate on location? Did it predicate on... What What happened?
1: Um, so uh, location is quite a large factor. If you look at where these um, cities are based, again, it's mainly coastal, mainly eastern cities. Um, access to other parts of the country, uh, usually by rail um, or by sea. It's very important. Or by river. Uh, resources. So... Um, you know like mining resources and things like that or um if it's or if it's in the north uh, different types of resources um and also the possibility or the extent to which you can expand the population with without it becoming um you know untenable so can it develop into a mega city of like say 20 million
0: was that okay wait was that sort of on the table from the start that, Hey, we want these places to develop in the mega cities or, or what?
1: Um, I don't, I don't think that it, it, it began that way. I mean, China's population reached a billion in 1982. So, um, and at that time they had decided that they wanted to start rapid urban development so definitely the idea of a rapid movement of people from the countryside to urban centers was factored in um, but I don't think that any specific city I could be wrong I'm not sure but I don't think that any specific city was set up with the idea that it would become a mega city it's more like this, we're designating a zone, this place is going to be low tax, high trade, no customs laws, uh, its own um, labor regulations or whatever it is, as much foreign investment as they want, and let's see what happens.
0: Okay, and I guess we see what happens. Um, what? Where does Hong Kong fit into that?
1: Um, so Hong Kong is um, literally a special case. Uh, it's a, its its own administrative region. So Hong Kong was a, um, I okay. suppose, a colony.
2: Say that.
0: Say that. Okay, I'm sorry. Say that last part again, because you cut out, right? You were saying it's a fascinating thing. We had this glitch across a <laughs> <the> planet.
2: So-
1: <laughs> yeah, so um, Hong Kong's actual name is the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region. Um, so that's its sort of official name. Um, okay. So between the First Opium War, so 18, like 1840, 18, so since the 1840s until 1997, Hong Kong was a British territory um right. and that was based on uh the treaty of nanjing which was signed uh by china with um with britain after they had after china had been defeated in the opium war and so in 1997 as part of the handing over it was decided that hong kong would continue to be um Sort of its own special place because it had already developed into a huge economic center in its own right. So if you remember, China in the 90s is still like a factory. It's it's it, Hong, China in the 90s is was what somewhere like Vietnam is now sort of thing. So okay. only really just developing in that way. Um, so Hong Kong was sort of like the future in that sense. So it was kind of decided Hong Kong will be. Its own place in terms of uh, the economy. Hong Kong also had a parliamentary system based, sort of, based on the UK system. So Hong Kong's democracy would continue um, for another fifty years until twenty forty seven. So Hong Kong is special, but that specialness is obviously, as we've seen in recent news, being erased.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's. I guess it's my opinion, I don't know if it's yours or not, that that the Chinese government isn't going to wait around at 2047 to get rid of the democracy in Hong Kong. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, um, I guess, like, um, how many people live... First of all, like, how many people live in Hong Kong and how big is it uh, physically?
1: um hong kong i think it's it's seven million something like that it's about the population of london so seven to eight million um hong kong is not that small but the uh the um residential areas are very concentrated so you've got uh, the beautiful thing about hong kong is that you've got all these sort of unspoiled landscapes, you've got all these beautiful mountains. It's a very, very hilly, mountainous place. Um, And then sort of when you get into the valleys, that's when you get these concentrations of high-rise buildings. So it's very zippy to get around. You can travel from one end to the other in under an hour, basically.
0: Yeah, wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you can't do that in my city at all.
1: No, you can't do that in London. But that's because <laughs> our transport system is like two hundred years old. So we've got our own problems.
0: <laughs> I mean, my my city is renowned for traffic. Um, I live in one of the fastest. I li- I I heard in a meeting before the pandemic that my city is the fastest growing place in, on two continents. Like oh, wow. my metro area is the fastest growing yeah. place on two continents, so that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's
2: yeah. definitely good for topic.
0: Too. Yeah, um, so, so you okay, would it be fair to say? I think you already answered this question, but I'm gonna ask it again because I only pretend to be smart. <laughs> um, would it be fair to say that China today? Is a communist country?
1: Ah, so, (laughs) um, it's so strange. I I get asked this question a lot in just general conversation, and I annoyingly always have to be that person who's like, Well, it depends on what you mean by communism. (laughs)
0: Like, maybe a good old fashioned, maybe academic, maybe. I get it.
1: A nice, yeah, a 350 page book, maybe. Um, is the
2: answer to that question? I mean, if
1: we talk about obviously it's not the same communism as envisioned by Karl Marx. Um, we can say that without a shadow of a doubt. It's not the same communism as envisioned by Mao Zedong, certainly. Um, but is it still a one-party state? Yes. Is it? Is it a dictatorship of the people? Again, depends on how you would define that term. Who are um, the people,
0: essentially? Like, who are the people?
1: So the people, like, um, literally.
0: Like, Yeah, like, but w- what I'm asking, and it's a rhetorical question, is, I mean, when you say a dictatorship of the people, you're obviously not meaning all of the people, right?
2: Mm.
0: Like, it yeah. might be... You might be talking about Jack Ma, and you might be talking about uh, Carl Pei, and you, yeah, and, and maybe maybe the people who own who run Inter Milan,
2: yeah. But you're not
0: talking about the rural farmer in wherever. Exactly. Right?
1: Yeah. Exactly. That's. I guess that's what I mean when I say it's not the same um, dictatorship of the people that Mao had envisioned. What Mao thought was that the workers, peasants, soldiers and sort of poorer urban workers would come together to support the party and they would be sort of the primary if not decision makers then at least the party would make decisions for them but as the the more China drifts towards um, socialism with Chinese characteristics which is basically a fancy way of saying a one party dictatorship that uses capitalism any way it wants, then yes, you do get the government, the party operating in the interests of those who generate the most money for the economy. And, you know, for good reason as
0: well. Yeah. yeah. Um. I mean, I remember um I remember, like, I I was surfing YouTube, um, and I remember watching how they make, um, I think it was, I don't remember if it was waffle iron, it was some kitchen implement, like some implement that everybody in the West is going to have, and just this factory of just manual labor, but Mm -hmm. the factory town that sprung up around was making irons, that was it the factory implement of making iron, like the factory town aspect of it. And like they said, every iron sold, I forget if it was in the world or in America, essentially came out of this one factory. Mm -hmm. And immediately I thought about like Detroit in this country or like Manchester in England or wherever. But I guess the difference is like we had A genuine, like, we had a genuine workers' revolution, like for weekends and for uh, different things, some of which are here still in this country and some of which aren't. But I I guess from what I hear you saying is that's really not going to happen in the Chinese system, right? Where these workers are going to want rights or whatever.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, you've identified sort of several problems there. I mean, we go back to talking about these special economic zones that were sort of allowed to develop how they wanted. They were the first places to come up with these, um, you know, these factories with, you know, Ford sort of uh, assembly lines, where people just do the same manoeuvre over and over again. I mean, I think every, um, every smartphone glass cover, every smartphone case, is made in China as well in like a a factory town of like 10 factories or something ridiculous like that you know it's all they're all made within 100 meters of each other in this one place in China and labor rights really do not exist for several reasons um you know first of all these are poor people who who don't have um Sorry, I'm gonna to have to back up here because I have to explain what a hukou is. Um, so basically, if you are born in the countryside in China, you do not have the right to live in the city. So wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, no. that's called a that's called a hukou, right? Um, it just means um, like a, like a residency permit. Um, so imagine you're in a small town in America and you just decide oh, I I want to move to New York or something like that. Um, Well, unless there's somebody in New York who has offered you a very specific job, you can't go there. And even if you do have that job, you are not a resident of New York. So if you lose that job, you have to leave the city. Your children and your spouse cannot necessarily move with you. Um, And your children cannot attend school in New York.
0: Okay, that's that's a new way of looking at it. So yeah. let's go back to, um, I'm going to, I'm blanking on the name, the fishing village uh, that's now Shenzhen. this huge city. Shenzhen. Uh, yeah, okay. Sen, what? Are, say that again? Shenzhen. Sen, Shenzhen. Yeah. So, okay. So are those people that, that I guess the natives of uh, Shenzhen, right, were they permitted to stay there? As it became this massive city or, or what yeah,
1: yeah, so if you're from uh, Shenzhen or Shanghai, if you're lucky enough to be someone who was born and raised there, then you automatically have uh, a, an urban hukou as it's called. and it works both ways. you know you can't just move to um, you can't just go to the countryside and start buying land. for example, if you decide one day I want to buy some land and start an urban de- uh, start a, you know a development in the countryside. Um, you can't just walk into somebody's town and do that if you don't have the right residence. I mean, they are, they are
0: after all, communists. I mean, let's not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, of know. course, there are ways around that, because if you're from the urban centres, you're probably richer. And, you know, the officials of poorer towns might be more welcoming to a small cash injection Um, If you wanted to start doing some land requisition, but that's neither here nor there. For the purposes of this argument, they are communist.
0: (laughs) So we're we're gonna pretend bribery is not a thing. Although I can automatic, I can just, you know, I can look at this and see that bribery is probably endemic in China. Like Uh,
1: I think uh, the bribery and uh, official corruption was the second. Uh, most important thing on xi jinping's agenda when he took power and it's still ongoing so they actually have a huge anti-corruption task force squad ongoing operation it's one of the biggest um political sort of ongoing policies in china actually
0: and you know one man's bravery is probably another man's how the world works or let's not be sexist let's not be sexist one one person's bribery <laughs> is just how the world works to somebody else
1: yeah and um, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about at when we were talking about who has rights and who doesn't have rights right so if yeah. you're a member of the communist party if you're an official or if you have money your rights suddenly look very different to the average sort of um, urban worker who's migrated to the city and doesn't have an urban and has to work in one of these factories and has no labor rights and is not allowed to unionize
0: now okay wait a minute um, I'm gonna and I, I, I say the word push back but that's not what I mean because obviously you're the expert um, I had a German teacher in college who was Chinese and we're going to leave aside whether or not she could adequately teach German or not for a second. Right. But I remember talking to her about, can people move around in China? Like, can you just go somewhere in China? Right. I remember specifically, like she said that you could, So is the hukou the fact... Okay, so if I have an urban hukou, am I saying that right,
2: hukou? Yeah, that's
0: right. Okay. So if I have an urban hukou, but I live, say, in Shanghai, right? If I wanted to pick up and move to Macau, right? Could I do that?
1: Um to my knowledge no (laughs) so yeah so from what i from how i understand who goes to work i mean you can go places
0: you can visit but you can't like get a job there and just stay there
1: yeah unless unless you can get a job there if that makes sense so of course you you know if you wanted to apply for jobs or if you traveled um you know say i'm gonna leave my small town, go on a road trip to the big city and try and make it sort of idea. If you get there and you can get a job, then you can stay, obviously. Um, And you're given temporary residency. But your residency depends upon you having that job. Uh, It's it's, it's more like moving to a foreign country than it is moving within your own country, I would say.
2: Wow.
0: I would imagine... Again, not not having any uh, academic background in economics beyond what I learned in history and political science and whatever, I I would imagine that that's going to hamper the Chinese economy greatly.
1: Well, they think they are thinking of reversing it, but um, if you think about the um, Chinese economy. First of all, true limits are things like, uh, in for the Chinese Communist Party, in their opinion, true limits are things like resources, population growth, um, and uh, the slowing down of the uh, inflation rate. So, you know, they've gone from double dip, double digit growth rates um, to single digits in the past 15 years, and that's for the party been a huge problem. Um, urban hukos controlling the flow of people. Um, lifting the lid on that would probably cause more problems than it would solve, really. Because we're talking about billions of people, literally. And, you know, when you've got cities, I think I mentioned to you before the podcast that um, you have different tiers of cities, right? So tier one cities would be places like Shanghai and Beijing, and it goes down to four. And I think it goes beneath four as well. Like there are tier five and six cities you know, living in a city in and of itself is a privilege, but living in a tier one city would be most people's dream. So if you think about just sort of lifting the lid on unchecked migration, then, which is what happened um, in the 1950s, and then you had, uh, you know, mass starvation as one of the results of that. So... Yeah, the government is very, they're very peculiar about population control, as you can see with things like the one-child policy. China is very aware of how many people they have and how they want to deal with them.
0: Yeah, yeah. I the reason I I brought that up was, um, so in this country, uh, we have a group of people uh, who are... Traditionally thought of as as uh, white, uh, that we call hillbillies. Um, and okay, like my—I'm not trying to insult people, as I've said many times on my podcast. Like my family is from my mother's family is from the Appalachian Mountains, and my dad's family is from south of there. But you know, no urban sophisticates. Us, essentially, <laughs> other than this generation. All right. But it's a historical fact in this country that there was this because there was all these um, people from the rural areas moving north and then not only just moving north, but then moving into cities like where I live or whatever. There was a dynamism that occurred from that migration. Mm -hmm. Right. And it just strikes me that. I mean, I I get it that China's not thinking of that, or the Chinese party isn't thinking of that, but it just strikes me that that's going to hamper their economic growth at some point. Because everybody, like if you're in, so like if you're in New York, right, and you only ever see people from New York, and you can't go to Boston and meet a girl or a guy, and then you you know, but you meet their people. Right, so you intermarry with their people, right? So you got two different perspectives, right? You see yeah. what
1: I'm saying? No, I, you, I, I really understand what you're getting at here. Um, yeah, I mean, just, you. I think it goes back to sort of what we were talking about at the beginning, where we uh, we spoke about. Um, Demand driven urbanisation. So how um, you know you pointed out that London had originally been sort of an entrepôt for the Romans, and that's how it developed, and how your town had been. I think you said like a a railway. A system. Rail hub. Yeah, it had been
0: a rail hub eventually. Uh, at yeah. First. yeah,
1: and um, you know, the, okay, the American railway system is actually a very good example because at one point it was so fundamental to the development of the economy, and through natural Economic changes, rail was completely replaced, and now the American rail system is essentially redundant. Um, uh, Which, you know, in the span of 100 years, is like an amazing contrast to see. Um, And that's all left to the forces of natural economics, which is not something that the Chinese Communist Party considers to be a good thing.
0: Or or even from the, yeah. Or just from the what I remember studying about China was, I wondered if they even understood it. Do you, do you know what I'm saying?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, I, yeah. not not only do did they not think it was good, but I don't think they understood what it was
1: or how it worked. <laughs> yeah, I mean what the Chinese Communist Party does and doesn't know, we will never know, and how they understand things, it's more to do with interpretation. Um, For example, the way that there's a really funny sort of uh, excerpt that goes around the Chinese community about uh, that has a Chinese school textbook that talks about politics, right? And in that textbook, The American system is used as an example of a bad way to run a country because look, they have these two parties. They're always fighting with each other and the government can't get anything done. It's a mess, you know, Um, and that's why the country is a mess and everything is a mess. And we don't want that with the Chinese Communist Party running the show. Everybody's got the chance to come up. The country as a whole is developing and you have to remember as well that the way that China sees its people, they are not individuals, right? So like the Western concept of individualism is very heavily ingrained in every person. Whereas in China, for the Chinese communist party, it's not about Chinese people as individuals. It's about China as a whole. So Chinese, like we mentioned before, extreme poverty has been eliminated in China as a whole, That doesn't mean that there aren't very, very poor people who maybe live on only $2 a day, but it means that there's no one in the whole of China living on less than $1 a day. And that in in and of itself is a huge achievement. And that reflects upon China. It doesn't matter what the individual suffers. It matters how China as a whole functions, if that makes sense. And so the idea of this, like, you know, the economy developing of its own free will, people moving about and seeking opportunities for themselves, that's Western individualism. You know, that's let me go off and, you know, make money and see if I can make it out there. And if I fail, I fail and that's on me. China doesn't want people to think in that way. China wants people to get on the track, if you will, like American trains of old and follow that track where the government leads them.
0: So, like, in the analogy, like, they're proud of, they're happy for, like, Jack Ma to have his huge company and whatever. Well, how happy they are is debatable. But, like, you know, they're they're happy for that to happen. But, you know, that's for all of China and not just for Jack Ma. Whereas, like, with Jeff Bezos and Amazon, that's Bezos and the shareholders, yeah. basically. Yeah.
1: And see, now okay. you have that that debate within America, right? Um, how, how much money should billionaires have? Should billionaires even exist? And, you know, is it right for um, Jeff Bezos to earn so much when his workers only earn so much, et cetera, et cetera? Whereas in China, that's something that the government can actively oversee.
0: Right. I think also one of the things about, bezos specifically and this gets us out of china but one of the things about amazon and bezos specifically is the more you dig into the mechanics of amazon that most people in this country don't right or don't have any interest in but the more you dig into it the more you start to realize like how okay for example Uh, So, even before we had our problems at the post office in this country,
1: um,
0: I forget if it was how many states or how many state lines it was. Like, not states, but state lines. Um, But the chances that your parcel or your letter uh, spent time in an Amazon delivery system was exponentially higher the further it crossed the country Hmm. um and also you you deal you you dig into the whole like in this country amazon effectively is the internet right so they they have the guts of the internet so i don't know if you've heard of the term digital vegan You know, which is like you try to get out of Twitter. You try to get out of Facebook.
1: Okay, I didn't know it had its own term.
0: (laughs) Right. So it's like Twitter, Facebook, uh, Amazon, and I can't remember the others. But it's literally impossible to get out of Amazon. Like it's Mm -hmm. literally impossible because Amazon is the internet. Mm -hmm. And so you, you get into this... I think there's a far more interesting debate to be had of not should billionaires exist, but are we okay with Jeff Bezos essentially making our conversation possible? Are we, are we fine with that? Right.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, We can get into what the replacement would look like. But I don't know if I'm okay with that or not. I don't know if, because, you know, we have free speech in this country, but mm-hmm. free speech doesn't occur over private, legally, it doesn't have to occur over private networks, right? So yeah. where I could mail a letter in the in the U.S. postal, ideally that letter would get to where it was going and nobody could censor it but you couldn't do that with FedEx or UPS or presumably email or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that to me, I don't know. The more I delve into it, that to me is a much more interesting debate than should billionaires exist Mm -hmm. because I'm interested in deep time, you know, I'm, I'm interested in deep time mm-hmm. and the more I think about it the more I'm convinced that money doesn't have to exist at all like it has to exist tomorrow or next month or my lifetime right but why does money exist period right <laughs> like do you, but do you see what I'm saying like our ancestors were these hairless apes <laughs> that you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, uh, money,
1: money I, I guess you mean money as in currency. Money say-
0: as in a philosophical, uh, philosophically, right? I'm not saying from a socialist perspective. I'm saying like from an interesting philosophical perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Why do we think, and I get it, I'm, I'm a man of the world. I understand why money exists. I'm not saying that. Mm. but I am saying it's a modern it's a relatively modern invention right um,
1: well I think well they have shown that even uh apes barter and trade so the idea of worth I mean this is this is Adam Smith talking here not me but like the idea of value and worth is some is a intrinsic sort of thing that we attach to to an item so in order to rid ourselves of the philosophical concept of money or currency or whatever you want to call it or value you would have to erase the notion that items held intrinsic value which is a slippery slope to say the which, least exactly <laughs> and I'm
0: I'm not saying that I I mean this is a philosophical conceit right yeah. I'm not saying this is a political thought I have or whatever I'm just saying, you know if a cataclysm hit tomorrow would your fifty thousand dollars mean anything
2: <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> well that's the, i mean that's the difference between currency and money right um fifty thousand us dollars is currency um but you know if the economy for example collapsed tomorrow then you know maybe the tin of beans in your cupboard would become money <laughs>
0: We had a joke in this country uh, during the, the rip-roaring days of the pandemic. We had a joke in this country about uh, toilet paper.
2: Oh, yeah, how, so did we.
0: <laughs> how toilet paper was going to become money.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, as <laughs> well. It was ridiculous, so ridiculous.
0: Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons I started interviewing people other than just doing a history deep dive where i gibber into the microphone was it occurred to me that we were living in times that needed to be talked about
2: mm-hmm. you
0: know um well eddie i could i mean china is endlessly fascinating uh we've been at this for an hour <laughs> we're gonna by the time i shut up it'll be 18 minutes um do you have anything you want to tell the internet oh and folks by the way her podcast is endlessly fascinating um please listen to it
1: thank you i it's a lot it's a lot less conversational a lot more droning than um this podcast but if you are interested in chinese history if you want to know more about the topics that we've spoken about today um yes the sino so s i n o b a b b l e podcast and also the sino substack um, cover both historical and sort of modern day china when we get into these topics and if you
0: send me links uh, in the email uh, mm-hmm. i will totally put them in the description um all right oh. this thing has to download that's going to take a minute um, anyway everybody have a have a have a good day. I'll talk to you guys later. All right, bye bye everybody. <sighs>